This is Ben Cutchins, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Uh, how's everybody? Ilya, in- introduce yourself to the to the listeners. Who are you? Oh, 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 that's right. Okay, so I'm I'm Ilya Friedman. I run a company called Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank, California. And when I'm not doing that, I tend to be a technical consultant to Hollywood and the motion picture industry. Uh, ben Rock, how are you doing? And and what do you do? I'm doing awesomely, and I'm a professional griper mostly. But uh, when I'm not griping about something like you know how hot it is or how smoky it is, uh, I like to work as a director and or editor on various projects, including uh, commercial type stuff. Most recently, a horror podcast, horror fiction podcast for Shutter. Always got a few uh, crazy ass projects in in the hopper. Got one right now that uh, I can't talk about yet. But uh, nice. Well, well, Ben, who's on the show today? Uh, today we have Ben Cutchins. Yeah, uh, Ben is the uh, second Ozark DP that we will have uh, had on the show. And uh, he's going to be talking about uh, the look of the show and all kinds of cool stuff. So I can't wait to get to that. But first, let's do a little uh, listener mail. We got we got a nice uh, listener mail here today from someone named uh, Matthew Griffith. Uh, Matthew Griffith uh, writes, Hi, Ben and Ilya. Uh, thank you for such an amazing podcast. You're very welcome. Uh, I was just watching the new season of Chef's Table on Netflix and wanted to see if you guys could try to get DP Adam Bricker on your show. I know that I'm not he... going to do it. He and I are mortal enemies. I don't know. <laughs> he knows what he did. Uh, uh, he continues. And this, this is this is like, yeah, he's kind of, you know, giving a little slag here on Adam. He goes, uh, I know that he's not the cinematic legend that a lot of your guests are. Johnny Durango. I mean, not, no. <laughs> not everyone can be can be Charles Papert. Charles Papert, of course, but uh, I was going to say yeah. Johnny Durango. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but Chef's Table is I, one I, of the. It's most... just my my mission to get Charles Papert a, a shout out on virtually every episode that we do. Yeah, as I'm trying to get Johnny Durango a shout out. So yeah. exactly. So um, <laughs> that's fair. Johnny appreciates it. I'm sure, I, I'm sure Charles does too. Uh, anyway, he goes on. He continues. Uh, Chef's Table is one of the most beautifully shot shows I have ever seen. Thanks again for such a great show. Uh, DP Adam Bricker, if if you are listening to this, uh, you're hereby invited on the show. Uh, listeners, uh, Adam is a longtime customer of Hot Ride Cameras. Uh, I I have had many long conversations with him, so of of course we will uh, we'll see if he wants to uh, to come on the show. And I'm assuming based on the title that it's a food show. Uh, yes, Chef's Table is a uh, very popular Netflix series uh, with multiple seasons. And uh, uh, Adam, see, like what what people probably don't know about the two of us is that you are uh, you're a foodie. I don't I think it's fair to say you're a foodie. You you like you like a good meal. You're very excited about food. Food is kind of a thing that you're into, right? And I'm like not at all. I I, I get I get bored thinking about food. So my my favorite Ben Rock food story. We were waiting to get passes to the AFI Film Festival. This is going back like 10 years ago. Oh, we were, got we were, more than that probably. Yeah, maybe 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. But we're waiting for these passes. We got these wonderful passes courtesy of, of AFI, and we were waiting for the passes to come down. And Ben's like, oh, I'm really hungry. And I said, oh, as soon as we get these passes, we'll go like grab a burrito or something. We'll, there's, there's all kinds of food here near the arc light. We'll go get something. And he goes, oh, okay. And he kind of wanders away. 
our passes show, show up and then Ben comes back and I go, okay, we got the passes. We can go eat now. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm not hungry anymore. I said, you're not hungry anymore. How, what did you eat between the, the, the five minutes that, uh, that, that I was standing here in the passes and he goes, oh, well they were giving away these boxes of mints and I had two boxes of mints. So I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm glad that your diet has improved somewhat since then, Ben. I think that since then I was diagnosed with diabetes and uh, stopped eating full boxes of mints. Full boxes of mints, like literally, it was like you are minty fresh from a mile away right now. Ben. I know. So. I had I had a stunningly brilliant breath for uh, for weeks after that. Uh, hey, well, um, well let, let's get to the close focus. We don't have to talk about food anymore. We don't have to talk about. Uh, you know, well, I'm just bringing up food because I think that if we do that interview, you should do that interview because this is uh, a, a main uh, source of interest to you or I'll watch chef's table which I've I, I've never actually seen you know what I'm ha- I'm I'd be thrilled to do the I'm, I'm happy to interview Adam I, I'd love to um but I would say that you should probably watch it too especially if you kind of want to like linger in the background as I often do in our interviews and you want to interject something and it is an incredibly well shot show and uh, I have heard many many people say that it actually redefined the genre of food shows so I mean uh, the, the look of that show is is superb yeah i guess i have just this idea of like guy fieri like stuffing some garbage in his face and a big close-up money shot of him eating some mayonnaise dripping garbage I, and I, just being grossed out to me that's when i think of a food channel show i imagine that i i'm not i'm no fan of uh, of guy fieri but uh but yes that uh that that's pretty accurate i think a lot of food stuff looks like <laughs> that chef's table does not oh okay so before we get to the close focus uh let's do one more awesome review from west nap oh my god i know west nap west another awesome regular customer of, of hot rod cameras i'm i'm so glad that uh that our our customers are listening to the show that's that's wonderful west writes a great companion to the experience of working as an ac or cam op or seasoned dp on set you mostly get to observe their physical approach to the craft with possibly a little insight into their uh, thought process this podcast is great because it gives you the other side of the coin emphasizing the decision making and the problem solving that are just as, if not more, important than the physical execution of the craft itself. Thanks, Wes. That's that's amazing. That's awesome. That's, that, I mean, that, that is what we're going for. That that is. That's exactly what we're going for. And uh, you know, frankly, there's quite a few podcasts. If you just want to hear about how to plug your BNC cable into the back of your camera, that's that's not what we're. I talking. can just tell you how to do that. Yeah. I mean, like that. We don't need a whole podcast for that. <laughs> there's enough other podcasts doing that. So direct message me on LinkedIn or something, and I'll I'll walk you through it. It's it's really straightforward, and I'm not even like a specialist in that at all. <laughs> so uh, so Ilya, we should get into our close focus. Which... Yeah, let's let's do that. Which this should be uh, dropping on uh, Tuesday after the Emmys. Uh, as you and I are recording this, the Emmys just happened. That's right. And uh, the the winner for best one hour was our uh, uh, our former guest David Mullen. David Mullen. So, that's right. It, it was great. It, you know, Mrs. Maisel for the marvelous uh, Mrs. Maisel. Exactly. Uh, two years in a row. Uh, well deserved. Congratulations. That's a that's a, a another wonderful uh, trophy for the mantle or, or wherever you like to keep them. So that's uh, that's that's super cool. Knowing David, he probably turns them into weapons and beats people up with them. That's, that's really, what I imagine. Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. He's he's, he's he's he he's like a superhero. He's prowling the streets at night and 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 destroying his enemies with Emmys, duct taping them to the end of a broom pole and using them like a spear. Yeah. And horrible segue. Speaking of Batman-like superheroes, cinematographer of the upcoming The Batman, Greg uh, Frazier. Also an Emmy winner. Also winner. Yeah, one for the Mandalorian. So you know, uh, uh, which I mean, uh, the Mandalorian. 
I, I never cease to be impressed with w- how they push technology on the Mandalorian and, and the innovations that they did. And Greg was right at the center of that. And I, I said it when we interviewed him and I will say this, I will scream this to the heavens. I think that they changed the way uh, television was made with that show. I think that we're going to see that technology get pushed more and more and people are going to be uh, using Unreal Engine or whatever follows Unreal Engine and these uh, LED light walls to create virtual sets that require no green screen and actually very little extra lighting. And uh, we're, we're, we're just at the beginning of that. Uh, so it, it was exciting to talk to him. I, I heard that an, uh, that one of those is being built right now. Another one is being built, supposedly the largest one of those, like in Santa Monica or Manhattan Beach or something like that. But yeah, there's another another one of those cool stages being built right now. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's axiomatic that people are going to be uh, doing that. So I uh, kind of looking really quickly at I'm looking at a variety article about what was going on with the Emmys. And I think that it, uh, it's interesting to me that the Emmys are sort of turning into Netflix versus HBO and uh, HBO kind of kicking Netflix's ass, surprisingly. Uh, Netflix went in with the most nominations. They had 160 nominations overall in all of the Emmys in all categories. And HBO had 107. That just but, goes to show you one thing. There's a lot of Emmy categories. There are an awful lot of categories for, for oh, Emmys. Oh, to, to be sure, yeah. Yes. Um, best and, best uh, narrator, best regional Emmy. There's there's a million. So The single show which won the most Emmys was Watchmen, which I think, frankly, deserved it. I think the, I think Watchmen was an amazing series. It, it was it was really well put together, and I hope that, too, uh, that we can have some of the creative team on from that show on, on our show so we can get into it even more. It was so much fun. Uh, noteworthy as well a show that i am not the biggest fan in the world of but i it's it's not me saying that it's a bad show it's just not my taste uh schitt's creek uh won nine emmys and uh it kind of swept all of the major comedy categories so uh in, including a historic win for father and son for uh eugene levy and oh. his son whose name escapes me at the moment dan levy oh very talented dan levy 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 i've always heard eugene levy so it could be uh, and, and here I am getting it wrong so I going was... all the way back to uh, <laughs> Second City TV which I used to watch a lot oh nice yeah yeah um, interestingly Apple TV won its first ever Emmy whoa for what it was an acting category it was Billy Crudup for the morning show mm. yeah well uh, that is a popular show uh, I don't know if you've seen Ted Lasso Lasso Loso Lasso I, I have heard of it I have not seen it it's quite charming I, I predict uh, big things for that show going forward so interestingly enough, uh, also, again, according to this Variety article, zero broadcast shows on the traditional networks won more than one Emmy, huh. uh, except Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, this might be the harbinger of the uh, the tipping point as... Uh, as uh, I mean, I, I think that point done tipped a few years ago. Like, I feel like, uh, I, I you know, sometimes I wonder, is it even a fair fight if you're, if you're NBC or something? If you're making a show like NCIS, you're probably not really uh, Emmy bait to begin with. But, you know, like, how do you even compete with things like, uh, you know, Watchmen or... Ozark or whatever, you know, the, the, the quality of work being done at these specialty streamers and, uh, uh, premium cable channels is just, it's, it's hard for the networks to compete. And the networks are also generally churning out 24, 22 to 24 episodes, 
whereas the the premium channels are and and streamers are usually doing uh 10 or 12. Amazon by the way, interestingly, did not have that many wins. Uh, I thought that was actually kind of interesting as well because I always kind of in my mind kind of bracket Amazon Prime and uh Netflix together, but I think Netflix is just winning by volume because they make so many shows at Netflix. Good observation. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, it's, it's interesting. I feel like Amazon's business model is also just like aggregating everything, giving you a one-stop shop to kind of find everybody else's stuff to, to pay-per-view or, or whatever. But they do some really amazing stuff. I mean, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is, is a great show. Uh, they did Fleabag, too, which was a really big, oh, a big deal. Don't awesome get me show. started on Patriot. Patriot, like my my, my favorite yeah. show. So, I mean, there's all kinds of... They did The Man the man in the High Castle. Like, they've done some, some really good stuff. I think Amazon, uh, their whole interface could use a, a going over because I, I always feel like, you know, the stuff that's recommended for me, it's like schindler's list and then the next one is like gator bait and i'm like you know this is not exactly doesn't come across as that well curated to me but i'm surprised it wasn't schindler's list and then zombievers i think that's more likely that zombievers it probably was zombievers (laughs) all right so hey ben i think it's time to to get to the interview with ben cutchins all right the cinematography podcast interview we are here via Zoom with Ben Cutchins, who is in the nicest yurt I've ever seen in my life in Northern California talking to us. Ben is nominated for the episode Civil Union of the current season of Ozark, uh, nominated for an Emmy, excuse me. Uh, thank you so much for coming out, Ben. Yeah, thank you for having me. We really want to get going. We want to start uh, talking about Ozark. And Ilya, who is here, is the world's biggest Ozark fan. I love Ozark, but I would not go head to head with him on Ozark uh, ephemera. Oh, uh, well, what I'm going to say, though, is for this episode, I think I should change my name to like Ben as well. So this could be the all Ben episode. Do Um, it. (laughs) And our editor is also Ben. So that would be. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Super confused. We can just confuse everybody. Everybody's confused. Uh, so, so typically, I kind of let Ben take the reins, and uh, I, I jump in from time to time. But yes, on Ozark, you, you might get one or two more questions from me. So. Fantastic. Well, uh, firstly, I just kind of want to ask, like, well, well, congratulations on your Emmy nomination. It's totally amazing, uh, and uh, it's it's an amazing season. I, I loved all three seasons, but the third season was the one that I was like, when every episode ended, I was like, got to watch the next one. My wife and I were just kind of going through them all. But one of the things, uh, well, first, just tell me, how did you happen to come to Ozark? Because it's such a, a great looking show with such a specific palette. It doesn't look like anything else on television. What What brought you there? Well, I mean, I started on Ozark because I knew Jason Bateman from a movie that we had done together and uh, mm-hmm. we had enjoyed each other's company. Uh, he wasn't directing that movie. Uh, he was just he was the star in it and I was shooting it and he liked the way the movie looked. And And then when Ozark came around, he got in touch and and it was great from the beginning. It was a very intense collaboration. And and I think we all set out to make something that, you know, looked unique. So it's it's nice to hear you say that it doesn't look like anything else on television, because that's kind of what we set out to do is do something that was unique and dark and cold and you know, create this sort of uninhabitable world for these characters to just kind of turn up the pressure cooker on them. And it was a lot of fun. And we, you know, we created a LUT early on for the show and used that to shoot. And then in, when we went to color time, I ended up color timing all, I didn't shoot all of the episodes of the first season. I shot most of the episodes of the first season, but I ended up color timing all of them with, with Jason Bateman and our colorist, Tim Stippen, who's fantastic. And we just pushed it kind of further than we had imagined that we were going to. It just ended up getting, you know, we kind of one-upped each other until we ended up, 
with the look that is Ozark now, you know, and, and, and we had a lot of fun doing it and I, and I'm, and I'm really grateful for the, for the process. I'm grateful that people enjoy watching the show. And I think it's just a testament to all the hard work that, that people have put into the show. I mean, it's such a, we have so much fun shooting that show. You would not believe that it were at work. You know, it's, it is a lot of hard work, but it's such a great crew. It's, it's really a dream come true. One of the questions that I always have watching that show, just sitting here, sitting here watching it and, and, you know, studying filmmaking as long as I have, I'm blown away that it's a show that's full of daytime exteriors that still feel like noir, like they still feel super, super dark. Can you talk about the process of creating the look of sort of a, a, a daytime exterior noir? I mean, obviously there's lots of dark nighttime scenes too, but where did the idea for like the look come from? Well, I mean, you know, the idea came from watching some old 70s movies and some European movies. You know, if you watch like a movie like The Conformist or, you know, some of the sort of noir French movies, there is no daytime exterior that looks like, okay, well, they just ended up in full sun. So they just decided to go with it. You know, there's very crafted look in terms of like what time of day you're shooting, where you're angling the camera relative to where the natural light is, and then control heavily controlling the natural light that's there. And, you know, my, my philosophy for doing the, you know, the daytime exteriors is really no direct sunlight whenever possible. Um, there's some scenes, if it's a long walk and talk that you can't control that. And I'll usually, depending on which direction I'm predominantly going to be pointing the camera, I'll, I'll make an effort to schedule it at a specific time of day that I'll make great effort to schedule it at a time of day where, you know, the sun is going to be behind us and not front lighting or top lighting our characters, basically never hitting their face. Um, so, you know, it's always kind of at the back of them if there is any sun at all. And other than that, it's a huge amount of negative fill and rags and covers. And, and it's not even, you know, big silks. It's like, you know, big silks combined with nets or, you know, big negatives, you know, sometimes as big as 40 by 40. It's really determined by the amount of space that we have and room we have to move around. And then my process is very reductive in terms of like reducing the light coming in, you know, essentially, usually from the camera side, not always, but usually the light coming from the camera side. You know, if there's three sources, usually at least two of them are are negatives or, you know, a gray grid, something that's reducing significantly reducing the amount of light. And then maybe one of them, you know, a 12 by bounce to sort of shape light from three quarter from the side or, you know, three quarter back. Yeah. So, you you know, you need somebody like Jason Bateman who's on board with the time that it's going to take to, you know, create this sort of nuanced look. And you have to be in touch with the first AD about how long it's going to take to move all of that heavy gear. And and you have to really have gotten really good at having a plan of how you're going to move all that heavy gear around and in the time that it takes and order of shots. And that's a that's a complicated thing, you know, and but I but I think it's it's all worth it. And and I think it's that show has pushed me further into you know, the idea of creating an aesthetic and really sticking with it. I want to ask a little bit about uh, working with Jason Bateman because he's the star, but he's also the director, specifically the director of the episode you were nominated for the Emmy for, Civil Union. What is it like, like, how do you, I'm always curious about what it's like working with a director who's also in the show. Are you, I I don't want to ask something like, are you taking any of the directing uh, chores from him at all? Because I'm sure you're not. But like, to what degree are you watching his performance or are you, are you mostly just uh, focused on the cinematography and, you know, like executive producers or something or are keeping an eye on his performance? 
I mean, to be honest, the person that's watching Jason's performance is Jason. And he mm -hmm. has this amazing ability to sort of watch himself perform while he's doing it. And very rarely does he watch playback to watch himself. Um, oh, wow. Uh, he actually sort of knows, and I've seen him do it. I saw him early on in season one do this where he was sort of watching himself during the take and and making adjustments to his performance during the take. And I noticed it and I mentioned to him to it later and, and he was like, yeah, I have this, I just had this strange ability to be able to watch myself, you know, from kind of <laughs> outside my body while I'm performing and he's amazing he knows exactly where he needs to stand he knows where his mark is he knows if the other actor is in and over the shoulder is covering him you know he knows if the camera oh, wow. is too far over to the left like you know it's, he's very on top of it and and able to perform those multitask in a way that i've never seen anybody do successfully i've worked with some some actor directors and i've just never seen anybody perform in the way that he does and sort of keep track of of everything you know jason comes in with a very clear plan in pre-production jason and i make a very clear plan about what we're going to do and how we're going to shoot specific scenes and then when we're there uh, a lot of adjustments happen. I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the killing of Dell and the season one, like he came to me the morning of and he was like, I want to do this as a one -er. How do we do this? You know, and, and so then me and, and the camera operator, Ben Seminoff and Jason all sat down and mapped out how we were going to accomplish that. You know, so we come in with a very clear plan and we are very thorough. Like I, I, the thing I really have learned from Jason is to be prepared and to be thorough because things change very quickly. But if you have a really good plan, like not everything doesn't go to shit just because, you know, things have changed. So he's a great partner. He's a great collaborator and really has taught me a lot about how to be on set. Wow. I'm sincerely curious, what form does the planning take? Like, you know, to me, this is like if you're if you're making a, a tiny independent film or you're making a, a Marvel movie, the detail and the preparation are the thing that that you have the time, hopefully, to get right. What does your preparation look like? Because, you know, Ozark, it doesn't feel like you just went in and shot coverage and then uh, cut it together. It feels very constructed intentionally the way that we're seeing it. Like, it doesn't look like there are any accidents and there and there's such a specific aesthetic to the to the framing and like you said with that oneer like I, I'll, there's so many really brilliantly executed oneers in the show overall so to me i i'm i'm curious about like are you doing storyboards are you doing diagrams are you doing shot lists like what's what does the preparation look like well we don't have a ton of time in prep uh, but we have just enough. And we usually visit each location at least once, if not twice. The first time we speak generally about what we what we might shoot there and how we might do it. And I start making a list of preferential times of days. Uh, mm -hmm. If that if it's not a studio location, you know, I start talking with the first AD about when we're going to shoot, what scenes. And that's our sort of first pass. And then we'll often revisit the location before we shoot just me, the AD and Jason. And then we're talking more specifically about what the exact shots are and what the you know exact coverage is. And I'm getting more specific about time of day with the AD. And we're talking about timing and we're talking about the details. We're talking about stunts, if there's stunts that need to have, you know, happen. And then, you know, and that's before the tech scout. So then on the tech scout, we once again go through it. So, so everything is very well thought out by the time that we get there on the day. But, you know, that being said, like everything changes. And, you know, a lot of those wonners were ideas of like, okay, well, this could be a wonner. Let's try it. And if we can figure out a way to make this happen in one, then let's do that. And that's really like a very 
collaborative effort between me, the camera operator, and Jason to make sure that we're really getting it. And often that's, that's, sometimes that's me really pressing to like figure it out. And sometimes that's Jason and sometimes that's our camera operator. You know, we each kind of like take the reins. Like sometimes Jason will just have the best idea of how to make something pivot and work when it's not working. And sometimes it's me and sometimes it's our camera operator and sometimes it's the third grip, you know, like it's a very, it's, it is a very collaborative set and, and nobody is, is talked down to and everyone is treated with respect. And that's something that comes from Jason. There's a ton of planning. And then, you know, we try to have just a lot of fun on the day. And if we can get in in one, we're always going to do it in one. I think that's one of the reasons Ozark is so distinct and stands out from the crowd is besides the sort of distinct look of it is this idea of like a minimal coverage. Uh, we're not just throwing up, you know, three cameras and hosing it down and like, you know, okay, we got that guy's close up, you know, let's move on. And the, the camera is in a specific place with a specific lens that's been chosen, that's been approved by Jason and myself. The camera operators know exactly what their task is. They know whether they're supposed to pan during the shot or not. They know if they're going to boom or they're going to tilt or, you know, like everything is sort of worked out prior to calling action. I want to dig slightly deeper on, on a thing you just said, too. I kind of want to know, what is the recipe for pulling off a one -er? Like, uh, some people think, well, if I shoot it in a one -er, then uh, then that saves me time. But it really doesn't because it means you have to get it all the way through perfectly and there can be there's no cutaways. And also, if a one -er is just kind of sitting in, in one place and not interesting, it's not really functioning dramatically. It's just, you know, a master shot that doesn't move or something. What is it that you're doing? Or can you talk through like when you see it working or when you hear an idea for, yeah, we could do that as a one -er, What are the elements to you that make a, a good one -er? I think the thing that makes a great oneer is something that dynamically reveals information. And I think that that's something that we're always conscious of on Ozark is that the camera travels through time and space to reveal new information to the audience that keeps it interesting and exciting. And it's mm -hmm. not just about, you know, like the West Wing doing a, a long walk and talk oneer with two people yapping at each other, but like, can the camera be a close up of Jason? tracking him and then turn into his point of view and then turn back into his, you know, wrap around him and then become his reaction, which then turns into an over the shoulder of another character. And then he moves through space, you know, so we're kind of building these, these pieces like block by block of revealing new information and changing what's happening with the camera dynamically and how we're telling the story. And I think that that's the thing that we always you know, we, we always keep our eye on the ball in terms of like, is this interesting and exciting? Are we revealing something new or are we just doing this because it's cool? And we never do anything on Ozark because it's cool. We don't try to make violence look cool. We don't try to like make a wonder that's cool. It's about revealing information and storytelling. And I think that that's how you do a good wonder. I mean, you watch any like Inuritu and Chivo wonder and the amazing thing that they're doing is that they're constantly revealing more information and sort of changing the perspective of of what it is you're sort of entering somebody's point of view and then coming back into them to see their reaction and you're revealing new information and you're traveling through time and space and and revealing and sometimes a new a whole new world to the audience and and i think that's what makes a good winner uh, i think the thing that i can speak to is that there is there's a real efficiency to the way that we do things. And and I think that it's not just because we're shooting a television show and we have a lot of stuff to do every day. It's really that I think less is more. And I think, you know, Jason and everybody on the show is sort of on board with the idea, if you just come in and you just hose something down 
and, you know, do five setups and, you know, do a wide, a medium wide, a, a medium close and a close, like you'll just get a formulaic TV show. You'll get something that looks and feels like everything else out there. You know, it's very sort of melodramatic. It's crafted in the edit suite. You know, there's a ton of notes. There's a ton of takes. They're just, you know, crafting every shot, sort of just whatever is the most efficient. I don't think that's the kind of storytelling that that I'm interested in. I don't think it's what Jason's interested in. I think, you know, Jason and I are interested in how can we take this one setup and turn this into something that becomes a, a master shot. You know, it's a master shot that becomes an over the shoulder that becomes an insert. You know, to me, that's like, <laughs> that's fucking cool. You know, that's when you're really like using the tools at your disposal. Cause those are the things that kind of stand out in people's minds. If you just cut to that insert, it doesn't feel the same. You know, it's it, it, the, the camera has to have a unique perspective into the scene and you have to remember that that's how the audience is going to experience this. And the moment that you forget that and you just start putting the camera in wherever to shoot something because it's like cool angle or or you don't have much time. So you need to put the camera there and that's what you get. You, you lose the thread of this audience that's on the ride with you. And, and as long as you're conscious of where you're putting the camera as the audience, then you get to have a lot of fun on set. I'm also interested in like when you're doing these shots that are kind of intricate and then we'll, we'll get off of the topic of oneers. <laughs> but when you're doing these, these, these really intricate design shots, do you hedge your bets? Do you, do you shoot uh, an insert so that you can combine two of them if, if you can't pull it off in one or do you, do you just do it? And if you, and if you're incapable of making the oneer work the way you want it to work, then you do a little more coverage to, you know, to be able to construct the scene properly. No, I mean, we, when we're doing the oneers, we really go bold or go home. You know, it's like nice. we really, we really just kill ourselves to make it work in one. And then if we absolutely can't make it work, you know, maybe we'll we'll do the reverse over the shoulder. You know, midway through that you could cut to if you had to, if you had to end up splicing the beginning of one of them and the and the end of another. You know, but we'll do. You know, generally, I think we've found that take seven is usually the best one. Um, but sometimes, sometimes we'll do 20 takes. Sometimes we'll do 25, to, depending on how intricate of a wonder it is. You know, sometimes uh -huh. we'll do uh, as many as 20 takes. But, you know, usually we're getting it within the first 10, the first 10 takes. But we don't often, we don't, we never hedge our bets before. Because I feel like you have to, yeah, it's kind of like filmmaking in general. You have to go in just fully committed to believing the story that you're telling. You know, you have to not believe that there is any other story happening in the world other than the story you're telling. So if the story isn't a oneer, you have to just believe that it's going to fucking work no matter what. Nice. I want I want that on a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's really amazing. That's good. Ilya, do you have any other questions regarding Ozark uh, that you want to get into? It seems that overhead shots of people looking up into the sky almost is like a trend. Also, shooting through windows. It seems like you guys shoot through a lot of windows, or there's windows play a big big part in it too. I'm just wondering if like that sort of barrier or foreground sort of stuff is a is a thing, and not just for cars. So no, yeah, um, you know the idea of shooting through windows, especially in the birdhouse, because it is basically a fish like shooting in a fishbowl is definitely something that we've been intrigued by since season one. Um, you know, the idea of, I think it's really a show that takes place in the world. Um, we always wanted it to feel like 
it's it's man versus nature and nature might be in the form of a cartel or you know it's 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 really this story about this family against the world and to include the world in it to make it not a show filled with a bunch of medium close-ups that look like the rest of the shows out there but to really do something where it's like you know mostly what you're seeing here is the lake reflected in the window but then you can just see Jason's eyes and his profile through that reflection and so as much as we can trying to like incorporate the outside world into the show and and really utilize that because you know most of it's shot on location it's not shot on a stage and so I think we're always looking for a way like how can we make this bigger and I think that speaks a little bit to your question earlier about like the top-down shots and and looking down from high up and incorporating a move going from something wide and in. And, you know, just the idea that we're taking moments with people to allow them to be in the world. And I think that that's one of the reasons that the show is successful at being cinematic, that we're allowing these moments with characters to just lay and look up at the sky and we're taking a moment to move in on them and we're watching them think, you know? Uh, Jason always says like, you know, let's give a moment here to, to watch the wheels turn. So I always, I always remember that and I think it's, it's important. You know, what's he thinking? What's, what is she gonna do next? You know, where is she going? Who is she talking to? You know, these are, these are questions like a good, I think a good shot, a good scene, a good shot, good photography asks a question, uh, it might answer it and then it asks another one. You know, so that's like a, a successful shot um, or a successful scene or a successful performance needs all of those elements. So I think we're giving time for that to happen. And I think that creates room for something magic to happen. I feel like, yeah, like inside in season three, like Wendy Bird's got a new office and there's all these like almost like impediments and walls and glass levels of glass often that we see and then we, that we we see her or a conversation happening uh, behind that and you're absolutely right the birdhouse like someone might be outside on a cell phone but yet there's a camera inside shooting them through a window through a kitchen through obstruction through all that kind of stuff and I was just wondering if there was any sort of like uh, besides the fact that it's cool and it tells a story if shooting through glass or windows or things is like is, thematically is, you mean yeah consciously like there's a conscious thought like is it almost like voyeuristic or I, I'm just wondering if like as you guys are going through and making your shot list or like here's another opportunity to put a window here's another opportunity to put something between us and the character is that how, how does that, that come about or when you're you're figuring out how you want to use a space because on location i agree you guys make really good use of your locations and there's a lot of z-axis going on of uh you know stuff happening at different different levels but how conscious or thought-provoking or or is it is it making the day how how do you go about crafting these levels you know, it's interesting because there was never, again, there was never a meeting where we sat down and said, hey, let, let's trap all our characters. You know, let's frame all of them to feel constricted and to feel like they're imprisoned by the frame. But we do talk about that on set a lot. You know, oh, no, if we like, if we just come over here a little bit and then back up, like it just traps him that gets that foreground a little closer to him and traps him in there. So and if you look at a lot of the framing choices, you know, the idea of using too much headroom, uh, the idea of looking at him through a, a pane of glass, looking at somebody with lots of foreground in it, it's all about really constricting the character and trapping them in a portion of the frame. You know, if somebody's like 
has a ton of headroom and they're sort of compressed deep into that right corner or there's a ton of foreground or there's a pane of glass where essentially what you're doing is you're imprisoning the character in the frame and i think that that's really what ozark is about it's it's these people that are trapped and you're watching them run around the maze and the you know the beauty of it is how amazing these the writing is and the the performances are at watching these characters run around you know like trapped rats in a maze so it is conscious it is very conscious um, on some levels. But like I said, we never had a meeting where we were like, oh, let's do this kind of frame to do this. It just came very organically and comes very organically at every opportunity, you know, to kind of back out, uh, you know, get out of the medium close up and think about, you know, the, the larger picture of, of these these creatures that are trapped. Well, in between the house and even just the location of the Ozarks and the way that you you photograph the woods and the the boats and the casinos and all that stuff like it it does feel like location plays is is such an oppressive character in this in a way like you know people are trapped by those locations i i kept while i was watching the sea uh, the ever since they moved into the house in the first season i kept thinking like is there a glass house people in glass houses kind of a metaphor going on i don't i don't necessarily think there is but i do think it, like based on what you're saying it just seems like you're allowing the environment to kind of be encroaching on everybody's personal space here a little bit like the environment is always there you're never not aware of it yeah no i think you know the natural world plays a big element in the show you know the woods and the lake play a huge role in this because you know there's danger lurking out there you don't know you know when people are going to pull up on a boat uh and drag you into the water you don't know when somebody's just going to come out of the woods i mean it shows the sort of amateur nature of them that they picked a house that's a house full of windows. If you're trying to hide, you wouldn't move into a house that's filled with windows, you know, it sort of goes to show that they, they're not really set up for this. They don't really know what they're doing, you know, but I think it, I became intrigued with the idea of the, the water in season one being something that was sort of oppressive and, and the trees and, and nature, you know, I grew up in the woods. I grew up in, in nature. And, and to me, it was as a child, it was, it was joyful, but it was also simultaneously terrifying. Like at night, you don't know what's out there. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons that I became obsessed with the show being as dark as it is, is I wanted, I wanted every frame to have the audience wonder what's out there, you know? And, uh, and I think the natural world is, is ripe with that possibility. Actually, I've got one more question that about the light level. It, it is dark. I know you guys, especially in season one, were using a camera that was very, very good for, for low light shooting. What sort of light levels typically would you say that you were working on? Do you, do you have a preferred sort of level? Your light level doesn't necessarily have to be uh, very, very minimal to have a dark looking show. Sometimes that's, that, that's an easy way, of course, but you, you can uh, always make it darker. But I'm wondering if you have a preferred level of light. Do you, do you want to be at a minimum illumination of some sort or or, or can it can it just go? Can it be go completely gone? What what's what, what? How do you feel? I mean, I definitely shoot the show to be very close to what you're seeing at home, and I actually probably shoot the show a little darker than what you're seeing at home, and then selectively brighten some areas. And that's really because I really became interested in what cameras do at the low end of the spectrum and how they kind of fall apart and give you this organic noise that happens at the low end. You have to be very careful when you're when you're working at those minimal levels and those very low end of the of the curve because if you want to bring it up 
sometimes there's just nothing there. And sometimes if you try to brighten something that doesn't have enough of an image there, you just end up getting more noise. So you do have to protect yourself and you do have to very specifically know what you're doing and what your levels are. And you have to test your equipment to know what the threshold is. But yes, I would say predominantly, you know, it's all about ratios. There's no specific light level that I'm working at. You know, if, if it's a bright, sunny day, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I just have a ton of ND in the camera and I'm, I'm working at a, at a ratio, but, but, you know, basically whether I'm doing a day exterior or I'm doing a night interior, it's all about ratios. Um, and what is the bright side of the face compared to the dark side? And I've, I think the great luxury of working on a show like Ozark is that I've never had to worry about like, oh, did I, did I go too far? You know, there's, there's been a few scenes where I like woke up the next morning and I was like, oh shit, (laughs) what have I done? (laughs) Um, But, but, but I have to say, like, I never got a note from Netflix. I never got, you know, Jason never said like, oh, hey, you know, we got to shoot a little brighter and then we can crunch it down later. Like never, not a word, you know, so, so I'm actually shooting the show darker than what you see at home and, and, and then crafting it, you know, a lot of what I do in post-production and the, and the color timing is, you know, aside from finessing the color palette is, you know, finding a highlight on the edge of, of Jason's face and just brightening that a little bit. So it pops a little bit more. So there's a little more definition on the, you know, three quarter edge light. And then that shadow I leave right where it is. I'm not lifting the shadows, but, you know, just controlling the controlling the mids and the highlights. So I, I kind of want to go back uh, now and kind of talk about your background as a cinematographer. The question I always try to start with is, what do you see when you're when you're reading the script? What's popping out at you? How are you interpreting it as you're reading the words? I mean, hopefully I'm seeing images. Hopefully I'm visualizing what that character looks like, um, visualizing how the camera's moving. I'm seeing some sort of idea of a early idea of what a color palette would be. You know, it's very nonspecific. It's very sort of like what I probably think our dreams look a little bit like and mm. and, ima- and our imagination, our daydreams look like just sort of, you know, the beginnings of of a look and a feel. You know, it's more about feeling like what does this feel like in this in this moment? And what's the what's the emotion and how, you know, does my brain click in? And I have to say, if I read a script and I don't get any of that, then I know it's probably not for me. And so if I, I kind of have to have a visceral gut reaction to to reading it and once that once that happens it you know you have a ton of ideas and then and then you meet the director and and they're going to give you more ideas and then you're going to give them ideas and it's you know it's you just building you're just building from there and uh when would you say was like the moment in your life that it first occurred to you that cinematography was a thing you could pursue i started out as a still photographer and uh, as a kid, really, you know, I was like a young teenager shooting, shooting stills on 30, 35 millimeter. And, and I got really lucky when I was about 19. I got a, a summer internship in Industrial Light and Magic. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and I watched uh, I watched them lighting set for Jumanji. Whoa. I think they were lighting. I think they were lighting the house that they tore apart or something. And it was a model that was, you know maybe four or five feet tall. And I watched them preparing that. And uh, that was sort of the first glimpse of like, oh yeah, that's that's what I want to do. Because I knew that I loved photography, but I didn't like the limitations of still photography. I didn't see myself, I didn't, I didn't see myself feeling, you know, like I was going to be a great still photographer, but I felt like with the addition of time and, and light, 
you know, time and space, that, that there's something there that really felt dynamic to me and was really attractive. You know, seeing this guy light this set, it was just like, wow, that was kind of an aha moment for me. So getting to work at ILM when you were 19, I mean, uh, outside of David Fincher, uh, uh, you're the only one I've ever heard of who, who got uh, in there. Like, how did you get into ILM? I mean, that is, uh, you know, like that's top, top shelf VFX company. So Lucasfilm had a summer internship program, and I'm fortunate enough to be from the Bay Area and, and knew about this program. I had a cousin who worked there, and I never knew if he helped me get the internship. He told me about the internship. You know, but he was a VFX guy there and he didn't stay there for very long. So it's not like he was the head of ILM. It's possible that he helped me. You know, there might be a little nepotism there. I'm, I'm <laughs> not sure. You know, I basically st it started as a summer internship. And at the end, you know, I think I went back to school for a semester or maybe even a year. And then a year later, I ran into my boss, my old boss there. And he's he asked me if I wanted a full time job. Oh, and wow. so I came in and started working as a P.A., and, you know, sort of worked my way up and spent a ton of time. And they had a full photo. There was, they, had, they had a full photo lab there. So it was, for me, it was a really magical time in my, you know, my photographic career and artistic career because I had, you know, the full use of a laboratory at my disposal. You know, I would work for eight hours and then I would spend, you know, four or five hours at the end of my shift in the lab, you know, pushing film and processing film and, and basically all the looks, you know, like the look of Ozark is informed by you know, sort of weird experimentations that I did as a kid. You know, it's it's all film process inspired. There's like this old dupe film that I used to shoot on that had like a 10 ASA or something, but it would <laughs> it made everything incredibly, if you shot it in daylight, it made everything incredibly blue. And, you know, there was a lot of cross-processing that I did. So really like all this sort of looks that I do for something now kind of are informed by a photochemical process you know, an organic process. And for me, that's, that's important that it comes from somewhere that's not digital filters. You know, we live in the age of Instagram filters, but, you know, for me, it all has to come from something that's organic. And it's the same thing with the way you move the camera. I don't, yeah. I don't believe in moving the camera through a wall unless that's part of how you're telling the story. Cause it's not organic. That doesn't really happen. So uh, did you go back to school after that? Or did you, uh, was ILM your film school? I, so I spent a couple years at ILM and then I uh, quit there and I went to NYU. Um, oh, wow. And that was a really, that was a tough choice, but, but I knew that I needed to go meet other young filmmakers and that that wasn't going to happen at, at Lucasfilm, you know, mm -hmm. as much as it was an amazing place to work and you were working with top level people. If you didn't want to do visual effects, you know, it was, it was limiting. And I knew that I wanted to have a camera in my hands and learn how to tell a story with a camera. And so I went to NYU and that was a great experience because I got there and I was in a great class of people. I mean, my class was Rachel Morrison, Reed Morano. Oh, wow. Um, you know, there was just like such talented people in my group of, of friends and and we were all shooting and we all shot so much. I mean, we all just shot everybody's films and we knew how to use a light meter and they didn't know how to use it. You know, it was <laughs> we were shooting film and it was like we knew how to use a light meter. And so I was off and running and we all shot like everybody's films. You know, I shot like 60 short films. I was only there. I was there as a transfer student. I was there for two years, but I shot like 60 films in two years. You know, it was like 60 shorts. And, it, you know, so it was just a great time to sort of experiment and learn how to how to how to tell a story with a camera and so you know for me film school was was a fantastic experience 
It's something that I, I, I always want to kind of touch base with people and especially uh, DPs who, you know, who, who are more emerging now, who, who haven't been working, you know, maybe who's, who are starting to work in maybe the last five, 10 years, which you're a bit before that. But I'm always interested in like the value of film school when, you know, you could go buy a DSLR and an editing system and start shooting and editing your own stuff and color grading, whatever, whatever you wanted to do. But, uh, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said about kind of the cauldron that you find yourself in you know when you when you talk about people like you know going to school with somebody like rachel morris and you know that it's pretty impressive people who you were sharing ideas with at, the, at that time can you talk a little bit about like what you see as the value of film school well i think we're living in the in the golden age of cinematography there's there's amazing tools out there that are so cheap you could you know for the price of tuition for a year you could just go buy yourself a bunch of great gear and just start shooting you know and that's and i wouldn't discourage anyone from taking that path but i would say i think that the good thing about film school is that it's not an echo chamber you are forced into a situation where you're working with people that you love and sometimes people that you don't like and that is very much what filmmaking is is mm-hmm. is is learning to step up as as a human being and how do you be a human being under extreme circumstances because i think that's the addictive thing about filmmaking is that you're getting thrown into the into the fire as it were very quickly and how are you going to behave and how are you going to interact with the people around you and i think that those are important lessons that you're going to have to learn at some point and the sooner the better yeah those intense collaborations early on really like forced me to learn how to work with other people and force me to grow up and learn to be an adult. And, you know, I, I think as a cinematographer, you have to be cool with like your set burning down behind you and everyone looking at you and being like, well, what are we going to do next? And you're like, well, I, I guess we're going to shoot the other direction, you know, like <laughs> while they put out the fire, we're just going to shoot this piece over here that we need. And that's what people are looking for in a cinematographer. And they're not, they're not just looking for people that set up cool shots. They're looking for people that are stable and like can be a rock on set and they can look to for guidance, you know, like, well, what do I do? Do you like this shot or do you like, you know, what, what are we doing? What are we going to do next? You, you can't say I don't know. So you, you have to like really, you know, I think the, the thing that film school taught me is how in every situation, whether you're working with somebody that you really see eye to eye with or not, to dig deep into, you know, your well of humanity and and see them for what they are and offer up everything that you have to give and and say well i think this is what we should do next like i think that this is the shot that tells the story i think that this lighting is telling the story you know you have to be you have to have an opinion and be willing to like kind of stand up for it and i don't think i don't think that i personally would have gotten there without film school oh that's really interesting so you know you get out of film school and you know how do you navigate kind of the awkward transition back into uh, real life and and working in the film business as you got out of film school well i graduated at a tough time because i graduated right i was living in new york and i graduated right around the time of 9 11 and like you know there was a bunch of films that i was going to shoot and everything shut down i mean the whole city shut down it was like a ghost town and all these projects and people were scared to spend money and it was really it was a tough time and i was lucky that you know a, a couple people that i graduated with i went and made my first feature with them uh it's a movie called bomb the system uh about graffiti writers and we made that for like six hundred thousand dollars or something and shot on 35. oh wow and and i was kind of off and running and i just made a ton of indies and you know scraped by for years and until you know you sort of 
create a network of people, a lot of whom I met in film school and continued to work with. And then those people that they introduced me to, you know, I did a, I did a lot of live music. I shot everyone from James Brown to Jay-Z to Metallica. Nice. You know, I did a lot of like on stage work and, and I love that. That was fun, but yeah, it's tough. I mean, I don't think you shouldn't be a cinematographer if you're looking for glitz and glamor and, and a nice apartment and a nice car right off the bat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Well, and I think that there there are two schools of like what to do and, and they're both valid. One is like you're going to go, uh, you know, be a, a, a gaffer or a camera assistant or something and work your way up to cinematographer through the system, often working on larger projects with bigger budgets, but at a, at a lower position. But it seems to me looking at your filmography that you chose the other route, which is primarily cinematographer, sometimes camera operator, but mostly cinematographer right out of the gate. Am, am I correct? That's a hundred percent right. I, I was never a great crew member. Uh, I was too opinionated and lazy. I'm kidding. I think I was, I think I was just too opinionated and I really like had a clear vision of what, you know, the projects that I was working on should look like what I wanted them to look like. And I, I just wanted to do that. I just wanted to be on set and be shooting. I didn't want to spend time as a gaffer or a grip or a camera assistant. I don't think I was very particularly great at those jobs and I just wasn't interested and I just wanted to do that. And I was willing to work for, you know, a hundred bucks a day for a long time and just do that and scrape by. Mm -hmm. I was, I was way more interested in, in what that looked like and, and really learn by doing rather than learn by watching other people. You know, I, I do feel like there is a little bit of a gap in my career in terms of, you know, like I never really had a mentor. I never really watched other people light. I sort of made it up as I went along until I started working with gaffers and key grips and camera operators that were like way smarter than me. And I was like, oh, that's how you do that. You know, and I started learning tricks from them. But, you know, in the beginning, (laughs) it was really just talk about trial by fire. It was just me just figuring it out one light at a time. You know, like I, I don't think that I knew I didn't know how to use a lot of gear properly until until much later. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's why that never worked right. You know, (laughs) but, uh, you know, at the same time, like I'm really grateful for all the all the mistakes, quote unquote, mistakes that I made, because I I think a lot of that experimentation and and playfulness, I think, still exists in my work and might not if I was trying to, you know, copy somebody else's work or if I had a mentor who was telling me how to do things. I think it's just a very different way of going about it. And not, and not one is better than the other. It looks to me also from the outside looking at your filmography that, uh, yes, you, you did a lot of uh, cool indie stuff. And then in uh, 2014, you did the Veronica Mars movie, which which is, uh, you know, a, a studio film, although I believe it was actually financed through Kickstarter, if I'm not mistaken. But it was still, you know, done th- done through the studio. Well, firstly, correct me if I'm wrong. Was that a was that a leap in your career and what brought it about? Well, I think Veronica Mars really like signified a change for me personally, too, because, you know, they were they were having interviews and they were in L.A. and they were, you know, my agent told me like, hey, listen, they're happy to meet you over Skype or on a phone call, you know, but they're really interested in you. And I said, "Okay, well, maybe I should just book a flight. And I was in New York and they were in L.A. and I just, you know, they're interested in me like, okay, well, I'm just going to get on a flight and I'm going to go meet them in person because I think that that's way better than meeting on the phone. So I went out there and met them and we just had the best meeting. Like I just connected with all of them. 
Um, and I felt confident in a way that like maybe I hadn't before. And, and it was just, yeah, it was a great meeting and I got that job. And, and it, I think it was a jump in, in terms of, you know, the quality of crew that I was working with and resources that we had and just, you know, in terms of like how we were telling the story, you know, I had worked with tons of great people before that, but it was just, you know, it was a leap in sort of the level of refinement and filmmaking Mm -hmm. um, that I'd been used to. So, so I think it was, it was significant. And then, and then from there, I, you know, I, not too long after that, I started doing Mozart in the jungle and then doing some other TV stuff. I shot that a was Showtime my next question, series. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was, you, you moved almost immediately into television after that, like yeah. a, a year later, like a year later. And which was great. I mean, it, you know, it's sort of like, it's an amazing time. I mean, you know, the truth is like, on Mozart in the Jungle, it's not necessarily my show. You know, it's a, it's sort of a comedic drama, um, not necessarily like what my bread and butter is creatively. But I'm also like working for the first time with people that are really experienced seasoned directors. You know, I worked with Roman Coppola directed an episode. I worked with Paul Weitz, who directed About a Boy and yeah. tons of other huge, you know, blockbuster hits. You know, so it was really an opportunity to start working with a different level of people. And, you know, in, in television, that's really been an amazing experience. You know, it's, I never set out to shoot television. Like I didn't in film school think that I was going to end up shooting, uh, you know, a show for Netflix. I mean, I don't even think Netflix was around when I was in <laughs> film school, but, but regardless, um, you know, I never thought I would be shooting something called TV. You know, I wanted to shoot feature films that were very orchestrated and perfect. And, and I really like, I have to say, I really appreciate television because it's given me op an opportunity to, to really do a lot of work. I mean, I've, yeah. I've spent, I spend most of my year on set and I work with sometimes as many as like 20 direct different directors in a year. And I'm, I'm doing way more projects than they have time to shoot for the most part. You know, I, I'm, I'm spending months and months of my life on set and it's really given me opportunity to sort of hone a style and hone a craft in a way that I don't think I would have if I was shooting one or two indie features a year or even if they, even if they were bigger features, you know, just the idea of spending months out of, you know, most of most of my year on set has really been a gift. Well, I feel like uh, to a great degree, the industry has changed where, you know, like when uh, you went to film school or I, I went to film school, I think probably about three years before you did, you know, the dream was always to make features, but television has become so good. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're sort of hitting on the allure of like steady work, which is great. And the ability to hone, hone your craft and not spend most of your time uh, uh, hustling for work, but actually doing the job. But I sort of feel like television in a way has taken the place of the indie features that were predominating, you know, between the late 80s and you know the the mid aughts and and so the television that you're working on stuff like Mozart in the Jungle and and stuff like Ozark like these are feature film quality projects like if you went to a movie theater and saw something that looked like this it would it would be perfectly fine it's just they're you know whatever 12 hours per season as opposed to an hour and a half two hours so I mean like has the dream for you changed at all not at all I mean I guess that's the thing is that whether I'm shooting a movie or I'm shooting a TV show I look at every day of work as the same thing. I don't 
I don't think, oh, I'm just shooting a TV show. I'm going to show up today and phone it in. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm giving 110% every day that I'm on set, no matter what I'm shooting. And I, I just look at it all as storytelling. And I, and I think, um, I think one of the things that I've been really lucky about is just being able to work with people that have a high bar, uh, creatively for what they want their projects to look like, you know, and I shot this comedy, I shot essentially this comedy series with Greg Matola, who's, you know, the guy who did super bad and all of these great movies. And like, you know, I love working with him. He's like, you know, even though we're shooting a TV show that's mostly geared towards young adults and, and kids, he's like, yeah, push it further. Like cinem you know, cinematically, like let's do this long one -er and let's, you know, oh yeah, make it darker and more naturalistic. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you're, you're working with top people that are, that are pushing you and they're right there with you in terms of the vision for what it is that you're doing. I have uh, one one other quick question. Uh, when you're working on a show where uh, there are multiple cinematographers, whether you set the look or you're following a look somebody else set, uh, what's the communication like between you and other cinematographers to make sure that you know you're being brought in because because of your skills and your and your talent in your eye? But uh, how do how do you go about making sure that it all feels like one of a piece? I mean, it's an amazing experience because, you know, a lot of my best friends are cinematographers. It's a very strange thing that happens. And I, I don't know. I don't I never imagined that, you know, my best friends would be a bunch of DPs. You know, they're the quote unquote <laughs> competition. But we all like, you know, kind of look at the world the same way. And, you know, we all get along. And that's the beautiful thing is you're on a set with somebody and and you're asking questions. And it's it's been very open and fluid for the most part. Yeah, no, I mean, it's an amazing opportunity to collaborate with your peers. And, you know, they're they are not your competition. They are my peers. And and it's been great. The, the communication I've found has been very easy. You know, they'll ask questions of me. I'll ask questions of them. It's very fluid and easy in a way that I never imagined. And it's really helpful, too. Like, you know, for example, lighting the casino set uh, this year on Ozark was a collaboration. I started lighting it. I got it probably you know, 50 to 75% of the way there. And then I got dragged away to do other stuff. And then Armando kind of finished it. I'm, you know, I, I shot a quick test in there and created a, a LUT, the first version of a LUT for that location. And then he shot a second test and tweaked that LUT a little further and, and finished lighting it. And then I came in and I was the first one to shoot there, you know, so it's very much like a collaboration. He's, you know, he came by the set and saw what we were doing when we were shooting. And we talked about a little more about how we would change the lot now. And it's such a fluid conversation and it's so easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's really beautiful to have that second set of eyes. That's, that's, doing stuff. And, and he would come by and be like, Oh, have you ever tried this? You know, I'd be like, no, but I didn't do that. But I used this once. He's like, Oh, okay, cool. And then he, you know, a couple of weeks later, I see something that he shot and he's like, Oh yeah, I did this. I mean, it's such a magical collaboration and, and something you're not going to get on a feature. That's, it's so good. It's, it's so good for you. On shows like that, is there some kind of a, a a visual Bible that you all kind of keep? Like we tend to use these kinds of lenses. We tend to move the camera this kind of a way. You know, obviously you have LUTs that, that you're probably, you know, at least using when you're when you're shooting to kind of make everything visually line up. Or is it just something that, you know, is more of an oral tradition that one of you tells the others and, you know, you kind of share ideas between each other about how you're doing it? On Ozark, for example, there's very simple rules. Um, you know, we tend to use 27 millimeter through uh, 65 millimeter and mm -hmm. not very many lenses outside that range. For example, I wouldn't do a close up on a 
on a hundred mil lens, I would do a close up on a 65. You know, that's mm -hmm. probably the tightest lens I would use. Uh, I wouldn't probably rather than put on an 18 millimeter lens, I would probably back up and use a 21 or a 27. You know, um, very simple rules like no panning or no tilting and and zero degree. Usually there's no tilt on the camera unless it's very specifically done uh, for a reason. Usually there's zero tilt on the camera. Um, that's but interesting. Those, no pan I've never noticed that, but no panning or tilting. That's crazy. Well, not no, but if you can do your shot without doing that, you should do that. Yeah. You know, like we will take the time to lay down a stick of track so that you don't have to pan the person through the room, but you're actually moving with them yeah. and not panning or tilting the camera. You know, as you know, often our A camera operator is setting up the shot, setting up the shot and then not operating, you know, like he might he might <laughs> be on the dolly, but he's literally, you know, just in case something goes haywire, but he's not touching the camera. Um, and I, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the rules and that's one of the ways that we keep the show cinematic, but there's no hard, fast rules. Like if that works and it helps tell the story, you should do that. You know, somebody's like, for example, we never really use anything longer than a hundred mil or a 65 mil. But if you have a great shot that uses a 300 mil lens, you should use that, you know, but it should probably be somebody's point of view. And I think, I think that's one of the most, you know, that's the strictest thing about Ozark is that the idea of perspective is not something that's willy nilly. Don't put the camera anywhere. Put the camera close to the eye line. Uh, respect the perspective of a character in a scene. I love hearing the guidelines of how you create a look like that. That's that's so uh, specific and refined. Uh, I actually feel like we're at a pretty good place to wrap up. So before we go, is there any place people can find you online to either interact with you or see your work? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Ben Cutchins, and I have a website. It's basically just my name. And yeah, occasionally, if you send me a specific question on Instagram, I'm happy to to answer. I don't really do the general questions, but mm -hmm. um, I do respond to DMs if if there's specific questions that you're curious about. Well, anyone listening to this, if you if we didn't ask a question you wanted, go to Instagram right now. Uh, thank you so much, Ben, for coming on the show. It, uh, amazing work and congratulations on your Emmy nomination for Ozark. And we can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks so much, you guys. All right, so that was Ben Cutchins. Everybody, uh, if you haven't watched Ozark, what the hell is wrong with you? Go watch Ozark. It's great. If you don't have Ozark, if you haven't watched Ozark, it's because you don't have Netflix yet. Um, it's uh, it's such a great show. Uh, agreed. Absolutely a great show. Hey, uh, Ben, it's time to pay the bills, uh, but we're going to pay the bills by uh, talking about something we're, we're giving away. We're giving away. Wait a minute. <laughs> I know. Isn't it incredible? We're actually paying the bills. Like We're, we're, we're paying the bills here. So uh, Hot Rod Cameras, yeah, okay. uh, an Instagram community called the Wonderless Collective and Gitzo Tripods are all putting, have all chipped in to create this uh, incredible package that one prize winner will win anywhere in the world our friends who uh we've put this whole thing together they've agreed to figure out the shipping uh, via dhl to anywhere in the world of this package and uh, you know as someone who is engaged in shipping i can tell you that that can be really difficult and or expensive to get to get this prize into certain countries so uh it's a really amazing opportunity for someone to walk away with a sony a7s3 a tripod a hot rod cameras gift card total combined package is over forty two hundred dollars 
Whoa. And you can enter right now, but you actually... I can? You, I'm, I'm entering right now. You cannot enter right now, Ben Rock. Ah, but our, son of a bitch. But our listeners who are not us or our immediate families uh, can um, can go to Instagram, can go directly to The Cinepod, and there is a link in our bio that will take you directly to the how to enter and uh, the steps that you need to do to have an official entry. And if you so want to, the bonus actions that you must take, including following... Uh, the Cinepod, in order to potentially win this cool, awesome prize. Awesome. That's amazing. Well, best of luck to whoever does that. Yeah, I hope that it really is one of our listeners, because there's other ways, of course, you could get into this contest that is not through the Cinepod, but I really want it to be one of our people. So, you know, yeah, win so something cool. Yeah. If you're listening to us, it doesn't cost you anything. No. Freaking do you it. You need to have an Instagram account. You need to spend like five minutes following a few accounts and, you know, entering your information. Just do it's, it. Yeah, exactly. You do that. You could... You, someone's going to win and it's totally randomly chosen by a computer. And if it's, uh, and if it's you and we'll, we'll plug you on the show. If you win, if it's, if it's one of our listeners, hundred percent, your name, once we know we'll plug you, Hey, we'll call We'll zoom you. We'll put you on the show. We'll talk to you. We'll find out what you shoot. We'll get it. We'll, how, how, what do I got to do to get you in this clear coat? Just do it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, is, what do we have to do? Uh, nothing. You you have to do something. You do something, you fill it out and then voila, you could become, uh, you could become a winner. It's possible. Absolutely. And now, short ends. So, so Ben, it's our famed end of the show short end section. What is your short end this week? I know you said you had a good one. I'm very excited about this. It's just one of those things where, like, you know, some weeks I have a hard time kind of coming up with, like, because I, I, I'm, you know, my real obsession is uh, not getting sick and keeping my son happy. So when I come across something like this, this was maybe a lightning bolt like the, the Beastmaster thing that we talked about a few weeks ago. And that is this. There was a movie made in 1983 that was a sequel to a ripoff of Jaws called Grizzly. It was called Grizzly 2 Revenge. This movie starred John Reese davies uh, and, and featured very early performances by George Clooney, Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen actually got his SAG card for making this movie. What? <laughs> and, and a young Laura Dern. This was all made in 1983, and it was never released. It was never finished. What? <laughs> but recently, very recently, like on the festival circuit within the last year, Grizzly to Revenge is getting released and here you ready this is like when i saw this i was like this is why this needs to be my short end this week you'll never guess who shot this movie oh man uh someone who's been on the show you're gonna shit your pants when i tell you the dp on this movie was laszlo kovacs oh incredible laszlo kovacs <laughs> of course yeah that guy <laughs> in, in 1983 you know what, what was he doing well he was shooting grizzly to the revenge would, uh, I don't know what he was doing other than this. He, but he was doing it, Easy Rider, five easy pieces, Close Encounters, and then, you know, he was also doing uh, Grizzly 2 well, the Revenge. he had already done all of those things. Oh, okay. So, and then, yeah, after, after ha- having be- become, you know, one of the preeminent cinematographers of his generation. Oh, oh uh, you know what he did right after, though? Ghostbusters. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah 1984 not, Ghostbusters. Not a, not a lightweight. No. Yeah, ex- so a year after this, he did... <laughs> fucking ghostbusters so uh the story uh which i found on uh the website the ringer we can link it in the show notes the story is nuts it's nuts john reese davies was right off of raiders of the lost ark Hmm. when he was cast in this they staged like a fake music festival and they had to hire like 
50,000 extras or something ridiculous. The whole story is, is just bonkers, banana pants crazy. And 50,000 uh, extras. I think that is what they said <laughs> in the article. And, uh, and even if they uh, all got oh, a dollar, that would be $50,000. <laughs> Louise Fletcher is in this movie. Oh, nice. I mean, like they got a really kick-ass cast. I mean, like obviously George Clooney, Charlie Sheen were not, well known at all at the time Laura Dern I think had already done a, a few a few pretty noteworthy things at that point in her life but like you know uh, yeah I mean it, it's just it's just an insane story the, well, this is the last movie directed by this director this director never directed another film although I believe he produced several uh, according to IMDB George Clooney is in this as well I said George Clooney like five times okay already. you did I guess I completely missed that then <laughs> yes, very young George Clooney. There's a picture of George Clooney in the article uh, from uh, The Ringer. I, and I heard he Charlie looks, Sheen he and, like, and uh, Laura Dern. I heard all these other people that you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, George Clooney was uh, couldn't have, he was probably in his early 20s when he did this. So uh, definitely keep an eye out for Grizzly Two. It's on the festival circuit now, or it's it's I, I don't know if it's still on the festival circuit, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it's going to be coming to uh you know uh, someplace like amazon where they'll stick it right next to the english patient on my page i gotta give major props to someone here whose online username i can't pronounce but uh it's their user review on imdb for grizzly 2 and their headline title is robot bear meets the solid gold dancers which is i mean <laughs> what else do you need in a movie i mean are you not entertained you must watch this movie i i can't imagine having the opportunity to watch grizzly 2 with this cast i mean like what what i it, it's 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 in a weird way it's going to be like nostalgia for a film that you never saw at that time but it's going to feel like this weird period piece that never really entered the pop culture and i i think that they had to film some new elements to put together the version that they're releasing but uh you know I'm just deeply excited in a similar way to the Beastmaster thing. Like if they're able to find that negative, that would be amazing. But the truth is you can go watch Beastmaster right now. There's a perfectly wonderful transfer that's on Amazon prime that you can watch. Looks great. You know, I'm sure that the negative will make it look a thousand times better, but you know, whatever, this is like a movie we never got a chance to see with people who became major TV stars or excuse me, major movie stars. Wow. This is awesome. I'm so looking forward to this. I'm glad you brought this up. This looks like a uh, schlock in the best possible type of schlock. I, I can't. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, and there's like a little bit of a trailer you can watch. And it, uh, it, the suit, apparently, they took them months and months to develop the suit. And it's it's uh, skinned in real grizzly fur. I mean, come on, man. And it's like 13 feet tall. Uh, okay. So, so Ben, my, my short end this week is the Amazon series, The Boys. Uh, I know you haven't seen this. I know you had a baby, but... Uh, yeah, I had a baby right when season one came out. And actually, Alicia, my wife, did watch it, and she said that I would like it. And I've just never had like the time to be like, okay, I'm ready to take in this this thing, because it looks great. I'm very interested. Yeah, I, I've, I've had major, major superhero fatigue for, I'd say, the better part of the last decade. I, I don't need to see anything else that involves a superhero is a superhero franchise. I know there's great movies, and every time one comes out, I go, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go see that too. But I don't feel the need the burning need for anything else that is uh you know capes and the boys mm -hmm. basically takes the whole idea of the superhero genre and sets it in the real world and makes every single one of them i'd say about as human as possible i will tell you that i think they tried this with hancock and it didn't quite work but the boys it works really really well putting putting all these people in the real world where they're all flawed they're all you know they all have their their issues mm -hmm. and then uh you as the viewer 
get to go wow i mean like you know this is exactly what if there was a superhero walking down the street this is who they would be serious question how is it different than watchmen which is kind of a similar idea no i don't think so i think that i think the the watchmen is set in a uh a different world and it's set in a world in which superheroes are maybe you know part of the they're part of the world but it's not this weird satirical roast of superheroes in the way that the boys is the boys you know i I think takes takes that genre and that impregnates it into the world in such a way that there really is this um impregnates yes impregnates impregnates the world with this um does it buy at dinner first it's you know what it's it's the commercialism there's a commercialism aspect of how superheroes have like the real superheroes uh are also the fake superheroes the superheroes act in movies they act in tv shows they all have like their social media empires and everything is commercialized and uh it, it reminds me a bit of like um mystery men when greg kinnear comes out yeah. as the uh the superhero covered with like you know all of his sponsor patches all over his, uh, his outfit it's it's more like that it's the it's the money commercial making enterprise which is superheroes in in the boys so and i don't mystery f- men is a movie that didn't never quite got its due in my opinion it, it never did it was, it was really too bad i think it was a really solid movie and could have been a uh franchise launch had they they continued on with it but it didn't do well at the at the box office and my understanding was that kind of only found success and cult status later so Mm. i I saw it in the theater and i remember very clearly it was opening weekend and the guy next to me fell asleep and was snoring and then i i woke him up and i was like hey come on you know you you don't have to snore here and the guy just kind of went funny movie got up and left so whoa it's a little weird that is i i'm surprised you remember when we met i'm joking i'm joking (laughs) i like mr man anyway um that, you know, that's the thing. It's like, I'll tell you, when you go to the movie theater, I think you have maybe more memory of the experience. You remember where you saw it. You remember what went on. You remember all kinds of stuff. It, it really was an event. And that when you watch stuff at home, I, I don't know if it's so much of an event anymore. It kind of. I know. Yeah. It's like, hey, it was that time I was in my underwear on the couch doing nothing and drinking some Diet Coke. Or I all fell right. asleep while watching that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Ilya, I, I think that we are ready to wrap up. Who do we need to thank this week? Hey, let's thank our intrepid producer, Alana Cody, who got, got months of shows now uh, in the can, which uh, basically we're going to just be uh, having one come out every week. For we, If we didn't do another interview, I think the next two and a half months were covered. Oh, cool. So I have two and a half months off. That's great. Well, actually, she also lined up an interview that I'm not going to say what it is, but an interview that's happening this week, upcoming, that I'm extraordinarily excited uh, that we get to do and and connects to several of our previous guests. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I, I knew you'd like this one. This this will be a good one. Ooh, All right. So let, this is going to be a great one. Let's thank Kazala Trachi, who is probably uh, not listening to this. I doubt he's listening to this. I don't know. Is he an Ozark fan? Not sure. I don't know. He, he ought to be. But if he's not, what's wrong with him? All right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and of course, we have to thank Ben Katz, who, as always, we have uh, made his task of making us sound halfway coherent. Not easy this week. No, not not at all. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Uh, OK, Ben, until uh, next week, where can people find you? Just go to BenRockOnline.com and, uh, you know, you can find all my social medias and whatnot there. I've been kind of pimping up LinkedIn. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm looking for a manager or something. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me, uh, I think it's LinkedIn slash 
in slash Ilya Friedman, something like that. I think that's how they do it. You can also find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. Uh, don't be a stranger. If you need you need something uh, camera related, yeah. lighting related, you know, reach out. Uh, just show up. Yeah, just, just show up. Can they just show up and knock on the door and walk on in? And They can, but we're limiting the number of people in our building. So, you know, you might not get let in if that happens. You can call and make an appointment. Private shopping experience. We are doing that. Pretty sweet. You're, you yep. have an amazing showroom and people should go check it out. You mentioned Sorry. the podcast. You might get a T-shirt, too. Oh, totally. Mention the podcast and demand, rudely demand your t-shirt from, from Ilya. <laughs> During a pandemic, you might be shown the door, but if you, you find me, you'll, you'll, you'll get I a think t-shirt. you say, yeah. I want to talk to that fuckstick Ilya Friedman, and I want my, oh my fucking God. t-shirt. Sure thing, coming right up. We only have extra small <laughs> and child size. All right, here, here you go. We only have onesies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, until next week, thank you for listening to the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.